I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 4th. Engineering continues to be less diverse than other professions, even among other scientific professions. By some accounts, it wouldn't take all that much to make engineering hospitable to everyone. This week, our guest is Christina M. Johnson, an accomplished research engineer and longtime academic who served a stint as a Department of Energy Undersecretary during the Obama administration and who recently was named president of The Ohio State University. All along, especially through her academic career, she's worked to make sure that everyone has an equal shot at getting a college education, whether that's in engineering or not. Before we get to our interview, here are some of the articles we have in EE Times this week. Were you wondering what Napster founder Sean Fanning has been doing? Of course you were. He's running a company called Helium, which offers technology that allows just about any organization, large or small, to become a service provider, providing wireless IoT connectivity. Helium is about to try something rather bold. Read our story on how Helium plans to get people into the 5G networking business. Also, we're preparing a package of articles that take a look at autonomous vehicles. One of our first stories in that package comes out of TSMC's technology conference held earlier this week, at the very beginning of June. The Foundry announced several new process nodes available to its customers. One new node is called N5A. It was designed specifically to support autonomous vehicles. We spoke with TSMC Senior Vice President Kevin Zong about how some TSMC automotive customers are looking to put high-performance computing. Now, that's basically the processor technology used in supercomputers. So, as I was saying, some customers are thinking about equipping autonomous vehicles with HPC. We've also got a story on the aftermath of the Colonial Pipeline hack. What happened and what's being done to prevent more critical infrastructure from being shut down? We have a concise but thorough summary of the very, very many updates ARM announced to most of its product portfolio. And talk about hitting the jackpot on buzzword bingo, we've got news about a startup called Light Matter, which is developing a novel photonic artificial intelligence chip. For all these stories and more industry news and analysis, visit our website at eetimes.com. If you reach this episode through our podcast webpage, there are links to all these stories on your left. Mildred Dresselhaus was one of the foremost researchers in the world specializing in material science. She was born in New York City in 1930. She said that visits to the local museums there sparked her interest in science. She excelled at school and eventually enrolled at Hunter College. She subsequently studied at Cambridge, Harvard, Cornell, and then at the University of Chicago, where she worked with Enrico Fermi. Dresselhaus spent most of her career associated with MIT, where she did pioneering work with graphite, fullerenes, aka buckyballs, carbon nanotubes, nanowires, and low-dimensional thermoelectrics. Her work is considered fundamental to the development of graphene, which won two other scientists the 2010 Nobel Prize in Physics. Dresselhaus's accomplishments were not in any way overlooked. She was awarded the National Medal of Science in 1990, 
was a co-recipient of the Enrico Fermi Award in 2012 and received the IEEE Medal of Honor in 2015. In 2014, she was awarded the National Medal of Honor. There are multiple scientific theories named after her. And yes, she was also a pioneering woman in science, the first female institute professor at MIT, and the first female president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, for example. As for being a woman in science, in an MIT interview, she recalled that when she was at Hunter, the college began admitting men for the first time. She said, The boys in the science classes were toward the bottom of the class. They always used to come to me for help. That might be somewhat significant in my story, because I never got the idea in college that science was a man's profession. Recently, the IEEE established a new annual award in her honor, given for leadership and technical contributions spanning academia, government, and business. The organization gave out the very first Mildred Dresselhaus Medal in mid-May. The first recipient was Christina M. Johnson. In 1985, Johnson co-founded the National Science Foundation's Engineering Research Center for Optoelectronic Computing Systems at the University of Colorado Boulder. In 1999, she was appointed dean of the School of Engineering at Duke University that was subsequently renamed Pratt. In 2007, Johns Hopkins hired her as senior vice president and provost. In 2009, Johnson was appointed by President Obama as the Undersecretary of Energy for Energy and Environment. In 2017, she was appointed Chancellor of the State University of New York System. She took the job at The Ohio State University almost exactly a year ago. Throughout her academic career, she's worked to expand the diversity of engineering students in all sorts of ways, not only in terms of the makeup of the students, but also in advocating for turning STEM to STEAM arguing that the arts have always been integral to endeavors that involve science, technology, engineering, and math. When I asked Johnson about the Dressel House Medal, she mentioned this. I knew a little bit um, Professor Dressel House, oh. and she was, she was a force. She was in a, all the best possible ways and uh, very uh, serious, but had a good sense of humor and very passionate about women succeeding in science and engineering, a tremendous role model. I mean, she was one of the first women professors in the engineering field. You've always seemed to have a focus of encouraging uh, diversity, women and and people of color as well in, in the engineering fields. I do, and I always have. Part of it is informed by just the love of engineering. I love being an engineer. I like taking big problems and breaking it down into smaller pieces and then solving the individual pieces, looking for how they inter interact with each other, and then putting it back together as a system. And I always thought system, looking at things from a system was really cool. And that's what engineers do. Mm. And once I got excited about the field of engineering. I wanted everybody to share in that. And I noticed that there were people missing, mm -hmm. uh, women and underrepresented minorities in particular. So it just was obvious to me to try and open the, the doors and encourage all individuals to just be able to experience the joy of engineering. So let me ask you about uh, your journey. Um, I imagine that not all the doors that you went through were completely open when you went through them. 
Um, was that the, I mean, what, t- tell us about your journey and, and, and what your experience is and, and then, uh, maybe that'll be a little more illuminating about, uh, uh about <laughs> your efforts to help people that, you know, younger engineers. I was very lucky because in high school I had fabulous, and junior high school I had fabulous science teachers. They they were all men. Mm. Um, I didn't really notice it too much, to be honest, until I got to college. And then I noticed uh, that there weren't really any women professors in my technical subjects. So, And I took a lot of math, a lot of chemistry, a lot of physics, a lot of engineering. Mm. And I never had a, a woman who was a professor and only had one African-American professor uh, in quantum mechanics, actually. So it was something, again, that was lacking. Mm-hmm. And I, therefore, when I graduated, and it sounds silly because I got a PhD in electrical engineering, so I couldn't be totally deaf. But since I had never seen a woman be a professor, I didn't really think that was a field that was open to women. And it wasn't until, a lo- and this was post-Title IX, which I thought was very helpful, to raising the issue that gender was a barrier. Mm -hmm. So it was really the uh, land-grant universities that first recruited me, and then the publics as a professor. And I ended up going home, which was Colorado, and teaching at the University of Colorado for my first 14 years of my career, which I loved. And I was the first woman uh, professor Mm -hmm. in a department of about 45 men. And then I became dean of the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke, which is a fabulous experience. First woman dean. I went to Hopkins as provost, first woman provost. Um, It wasn't until my last job that I wasn't the first woman in that position, and that was at SUNYC. There had been a great chancellor just before me, Nancy Zimfer, who was chancellor. So, you know, I think that in that part, the Mildred Dressel House medal to me is about, yes, it's, it's... emulates significant technical contributions. Mm. I also think it has a lot to do with being a pioneer like um, Professor Dresselhouse was. Mm. So I'm really honored to be the inaugural recipient. So um, mentors is one thing. Peers is another. When you look around at the people you're taking classes with, did it make a difference that they may not have looked like you? In my undergraduate uh, world, we had about 20% women in electrical engineering, and it's still about 20% today. I think we've made progress, but you wouldn't necessarily know it by the numbers, but I do think we've made progress in expanding the fields of engineering, in part because there was a study done in 1990 by the National Science Foundation, which said that women will pursue a technical career and stay in that career if it has society impact. So I'm not surprised that 50% of our biomedical engineering undergraduate students are women. I'm not surprised there's a large majority in environmental engineering. I think that the um, what we need to do in electrical engineering is connect the dots between the impact an engineer can make as an electrical engineer and the social impact, which it's immense. I mean, really, when you think about it, I think about electrical engineering as being about systems engineering in, mm-hmm. in a large regard. So I think that there is just about, there isn't any system on the planet that can't be improved by taking an engineering approach. I, I think that that um, having, so that was at the undergraduate level. I did have nine women. We had a small undergraduate class really mm-hmm. at, at Stanford. Most of the students were in the graduate program. I had some wonderful undergraduate uh, mates. 
really at the graduate level, so the year I took my PhD qualifying exam, there are 125 of us, 124 men. I was the only woman. Uh, and But the research group I joined, uh, we had three women out of nine graduate students, so that was pretty high in, in comparison. And they were extraordinary women, I have to say. Uh, one was El Nochoa, hmm. you know, who was an astronaut, uh, went up in the shuttle four times, and just retired as the head of the Johnson Space Center. Uh, she was a graduate student in my group. And then Chi Chi Chow, who has become quite the entrepreneur and is retired now. But she, um, so we are the three women, and it helped a lot. Yeah, because anytime you, you maybe start to doubt, oh, you know, is this really for me? You see other women doing it. It's like, yeah, everybody has a bad day. There's always a bad day in the lab, right? Mm -hmm. Experiment doesn't work. Come back the next day, try it again. Uh, and I had great friends who were, were men as well. It was a really very supportive environment um, at Stanford at, at the undergraduate and graduate level. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you about um, what measures you might take uh, to encourage uh, greater participation in electrical engineering. But a moment ago, you mentioned something specific that I just wanted to follow up on. You had mentioned that um, women often want to see a connection between the effort and some, uh, you know, in what the outcome is. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I imagine that's certainly one thing, I'll, but, um, I have also spoken to a lot of women who are in the engineering field over the years and they often, uh, it's, it's very common, uh, that I've heard people say that it's, the environment may be not hostile, but not welcoming, not overtly welcoming. Uh, do you have any? Um, do you have any view on on the the just the 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 cultural environment of different engineering disciplines and whether they're encouraging or not? I think um, in the past, engineering in general has been a very, it's a, like, it's a tough subject. I mean, whether yeah. you're, you know, no matter what part you're taking, or you're taking thermo, you're taking network synthesis theory. I mean, it's a tough uh, subject mm -hmm. and you really, uh, being good at math is a great indicator of an aptitude towards engineering, but not the whole thing. Um, so I think that can be viewed as not welcoming for men and women. Yeah. yeah. I remember people talking about, now I never experienced this, but if you ask almost any engineer of, of my age, they'll tell you when they're an undergraduate that their first introductory uh, class, the professor would say, look to your right, look to your left. One of you won't be here at graduation. <laughs> right. 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 And, and frankly, um, in a lot of places, it's look to your right, look to your left. Neither of you will be there at graduation <laughs> yeah. because the attrition rate was pretty high. That was true for men or women. And mm -hmm. I think what we realized is that uh, to maintain our global competitiveness, competitiveness, to solve the world's most pressing problems, you know, you think about the sustainable development goals of the UN, we need more engineers. We need more people who think like engineering. Even if they don't pursue a degree in engineering, no matter what field they go into, it's a wonderful platform. So I think that... It's to the place now where we recognize that we need as much talent as we can get mm -hmm. in these fields. So I think it's changed. We don't, you won't hear, I, I would, I would 
say you would never hear something like that today. Mm-hmm. But I think back in the day, there's something to that, that it was um, more of a uh, rite of passage as opposed to a, as welcoming. Yeah. Well, then that gets us back to the question of um, what what are the things that people can do to encourage participation? Uh, you said, I mean, uh, of men, women, and whatever other category you might want. If you, if, if the world needs engineers, what do we do to encourage more engineering? I think it comes down to motivating people with their heart as well as their head. Mm. So what do I mean by that? Um, I love music. I, you know, I think most, uh, you know, I think most people, it's a common language, right? Music. And as a result, I know that when we were at Duke in our freshman year, every student, this is this wasn't that long ago, but it's going to sound like that when I tell you, everybody was given an iPod. Oh my gosh, <gasps> you think, I know, an iPod, really? Wow. Had you said so, Walkman, then we would have had something. iPod is I know, cool. That, you're, uh, yeah, yeah, you're just right. a little whippersnapper. So we look at one of the, you know, and this is before, I mean, this is before you had mobile apps, you had the cloud. I mean, this was really back in the dark ages, but having (laughs) um, an iPod, you could then talk to students and say, okay, let's talk about capacity, memory capacity. We could talk about fidelity. How many songs do you want to store? What kind of, of fidelity do you want? Oh, I want them to be perfect. Well, then you're going to have to sample at a very high rate. That's going to take up most of your memory. So you might get to save one song or a dozen songs. Mm-hmm. If you really want playlists and multiple playlists and you still want to carry it around, then you start to get the trade-offs, which is what engineering is all about, design under constraint. You have a constraint of memory. You have a constraint of fidelity. You can teach total harmonic distortion. All of a sudden, you have signal processing. You have design, product design. They're so It's so rich. Once you see what people can do and get them excited to learn, it's flipping it. rather. So the way we've taught engineering for decades, maybe century, mm-hmm is that we start out with in electrical engineering, you know, circuits, and then we build up to, uh, you know, you might might talk about, you know, discrete circuits and then, you know, digital circuits and then systems and then networks and then larger systems, right? And then you get to do a capstone design project your senior year. Mm -hmm. It's too late. But if you start early and you have people start designing their capstone design class their freshman year, Mm Our first year, and then building on what they're learning in order to make it more um, sophisticated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and elegant. Then, by the time you graduate, you've had four years to put into it. It has been your motivating, guiding light for that whole period of time. Much more interesting and great application. So, I think we need to kind of invert that. And there are universities, obviously, they're doing it. We we redesigned our engineering curriculum yeah. at Duke uh, under the work of Leslie Collins professor there and it made a big difference all right uh, another theme i've noticed throughout your career is the uh the notion of cross-domain technology what what got you jazzed about going cross-domain and uh and what do you think the value is of it well that's a, you know a wonderful question i super appreciate you asking for so many reasons i'll try and be succinct but so cross-disciplinary research, and, and now we've taken it to the next level called convergent research, but 
back in the day, you go back 40 years when I was starting out as an assistant professor, it was once one professor, a few graduate students, maybe a postdoc working on one set of problems. Very few professors work together in teams. Very few students work together in teams. But I was fortunate enough that I had a professor, Joe Goodman at, at Stanford, who put together a cross-disciplinary research project mm. and got it funded. Now, this was really interesting. It had a radiologist at Stanford uh, Medical Center. It had a um, industrial engineers from Lockheed Martin, and it had an electrical engineer. So you had medicine, engineering, and industry, very cross cross. Uh, sector, if you will, okay. cross-disciplinary. And we were looking at three-dimensional displays of medical data. So we're using holography to give a three-dimensional display of inside the body to give a more accurate, maybe, display of what physicians would see when they're planning a radiation treatment or a surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you think about and when I think about Stanford as being a pioneer in that cross-disciplinary research, you only have to go back to um, the 1950s when you had Henry S. Henry S. Kaplan, who is the head of radio, uh, radiology at Stanford, talk to Ed Ginston. There's Ginston Labs, electrical engineer, and um, Weisbluth. I think it was Herman Weisbluth, who was a physicist. And here's what they envisioned. It was fascinating. You had the Stanford Linear Accelerator, uh, miles of circular track where you're accelerating particles at very high speeds to hit a target and give off very intense x-rays. They said, could we take this thing that's miles in diameter and shrink it down to something inside a medical hospital room? And now they make the Varian makes these machines called Linux, mm-hmm. linear accelerators. Right. And so they came up with a way to build an instrument that could cure certain types of cancer by delivering these really high intensity radiation uh, beams. As it turned out, I got one of those kinds of cancers. It's called Hodgkin's disease. Mm. And Henry S. Kaplan came up with the way of, of treating it. That actually, prior to his work, it was universally fatal within a few years. But because of the LINAC that they could shrink inside a medical center, I actually got treated on one of those. So if not for these cross-disciplinary, cross-domain research projects, I wouldn't be here today. And so that's the power when you have a, a medical researcher working with an engineer, working with a scientist and an industrialist, that that created then a whole line of... Um, of uh, medical instruments that cured people, and it even gets better. On March 24th, we had President Biden visit the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Of course, it was the 11th anniversary because of COVID, but it was the 10th. And what did we get at the Wexner Medical Center? But a LINAC, $100 million to build a floor of these state-of-the-art linear accelerators. It comes full circle. So, yes, I'm quite passionate about this cross-domain, cross-disciplinary work. Well, we're, uh, that makes us, hearing that story, that makes us um, doubly grateful to have you here as a guest this time. Um, so uh, one of your more recent endeavors, uh, and I don't know if it is the most recent, but one of your most recent endeavors is looking at hydropower. Can you tell us what that's all about? <laughs> yes. So the reason I became an electrical engineer is my dad was a hydropower engineer. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, for Westinghouse. And my granddad was also a hydropower engineer. And he went to the Ohio State University. 
So I'm the third generation hydropower engineer. However, when I went to engineering school, the hottest thing was digital, not analog, and it certainly wasn't power. In fact, I think I was one of the last classes to take power engineering My, how things at have changed, Stanford. Right? Right. You know, everything comes back. That's why you can never get rid of any sub-discipline in a field because you never know when someone's going to invent something that's going to make it hot. Right. So um, I served as the Undersecretary of Energy for two years mm. under the first Obama term. And our responsibility and my responsibility was to get out the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, about $36 billion of clean energy projects. And this was uh, in... Um, collaboration, of course, with Matt Rogers, who was uh, leading that effort uh, for us. And it really, you know, I really got hooked on this, the, the, the reality that climate change is extremely real. And if we don't do something about it soon, it's going to be problematic. So I wanted to get out and do something about it, not just the theory. Mm-hmm. And so I formed a, a startup in hydropower. And we built our, we don't build dams, but if there's a dam that exists for recreation, navigation, irrigation, uh, or water supply for a city, and the water's got to flow from a high point to a low point, might as well send it through a turbine and create clean electricity. And so that's what we did. And we ended up building a company with 19 plants in five states on 10 rivers and creates enough clean electricity to power 150,000 homes with 100% clean power. I understand that uh, um, working at the Ohio State University is probably going to consume a little bit of your time, but from an engineering standpoint, <laughs> how, do you have any? I mean, has anything caught your eye? Have you got projects that you're you're looking to pursue or help encourage? What what's what's going on in your life today? Uh, you're right. Well, um, no, certainly I'm I'm still quite concerned about our environment and always have been and will continue to be. I think what I'm concerned about today is making sure that every person that has making sure every person has the opportunity to a higher education degree. And the reason it's so important today, and you know, a lot of people don't realize it. Most people do realize it, I think. But um, you know, if you look at the number of net new jobs that were created since the Great Recession. It's between 12 million and 13 million. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 98% of those went to people with some kind of college education. Right. So it's re- what used to be maybe a nice to have and a desired has now become essential. And I am concerned about, about people and I'm concerned about you know, the people of the world in this country leading a productive and rewarding life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think one path to that is is education and all the, the joys. I mean, we know that uh, people with higher education are more likely to vote, more likely to be in good health, more likely uh, to not live in po- poverty. So I think it's a, you know, it's an obligation and it's something that it's a service and it's a calling. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed my time in private industry, but at the end of the day, I think I'm really an academic at heart. So I'm working on affordability. We announced in my State of the University address three major initiatives. One is debt-free bachelor's degree. So we have about 4,000 students who graduate a year with about $27,000 on average in debt. And I think over 10 years, we can get to uh, debt-free. It'll involve some contribution from the student. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we'll put in place plans for internships and getting that hands-on, right. you know, 
opportunity to, to uh, experience the, the, uh, what it's going to be like in the real world. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the initiatives. The second one is, is focusing on convergent research topics where we bring together large groups, cross-disciplinary, mm-hmm. if you get the theme, and mm-hmm. I'm a living proof of that, so to speak, and grow our research enterprise. It's still, you know, it's about a billion a year right now. I think we can set an ambitious goal to try to double that in the next decade. Okay. And then, you know, lastly, it's uh, investing in our, our faculty. Over the last decade, we've added uh, about the equivalent of 5,500 students. So, you know, the size of a liberal arts university like Duke. But we've lost about 220 faculty. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we look at at creating within, we have a, um, a new provost that will be coming in and their job will be to create a faculty hiring plan, working with the deans of our particular colleges and looking for opportunities where we can grow our strengths, both in the the education and the research. So those are three of the major initiatives I'm looking at. Okay. Earlier in our conversation, uh, you had mentioned your your uh, uh, enjoyment of music. Um, I wanted to kind of take off on that observation and ask you about... Um, whether you have any philosophy on STEM versus STEAM, adding adding the arts to STEM. I love it, and I think it's it's very important. I think it's just as important to add the the arts to the the STEM as it is to add uh, the STEM into the arts and humanities and social and behavioral sciences. So I think that that they need to truly be blended and. So a couple things, you know, in the National Academy of Engineering, uh, I was taken um, when I was in the auditorium, you know, looking at the National Academy of Engineering and the origin of it. And it was really thinking about the world in terms of the living and the non-living. So if you think about the things that are man-made, human-made, woman-made, so that's the arts and engineering are together, Mm. right? And then there's the 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 uh, and that would be sort of that the the human creative aspect. And then there's the living, mm-hmm. and so that's you know your biological sciences and and um, so if you think about that, arts and, and engineering have never been separate. They've always been together. Um, I also think recently I had the the opportunity to attend uh, several charrettes. I'm, I'm new still at the Ohio State University, so I'm learning uh, with our, um, about the, the wealth of incredible faculty we have here. And I had a charrette with the arts and humanities faculty. They made a very important observation. And they said, look, we get brought in at the end, right? When, when it's time to put in the proposal on some grand project, that's when we are brought in. Oh, yeah, we need an artist. We need a humanist or social scientist. So let's go grab, you know, Anne or Joe or whatever. They said, no, no, that's the wrong time. You got to get us in the beginning because we think about things differently. You know, I was, I was really, uh, you know, inspired by what Steve Jobs said about how he created the the different fonts, right, for the early Mac. And that was from a couple classes he took in calligraphy. Mm-hmm. And just seeing how the the design and creativity enhances the and, and guides the solutions. They're saying, oh, we should be in the beginning helping helping develop the questions that need to be asked to formulate the solutions. And they're exactly right. 
but we don't generally do that, at least from the, the, the science side. So I think that that's an area where uh, STEAM is really important to get that initial connection. President Johnson, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, Brian. Thank you. That was Christina M. Johnson, president of The Ohio State University and the first recipient of the first IEEE Mildred Dresselhaus Medal, which was awarded in mid-May, along with 18 other medals. We have a link to the complete list of this year's IEEE Medal recipients on this podcast's webpage. One quick correction from our conversation. When we were talking about one of the first examples of an interdisciplinary team, we got the first name incorrect of the Stanford physicist. He was Mitchell Weisbluth. Also, we neglected to mention the name of the hydro technology company that Johnson co-founded. It was Enduring Hydro. After several mergers, it is now part of Eagle Creek Renewable Energy Company. And that is it for the weekly briefing. Thank you for listening. This podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The weekly briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. Is there anything that I haven't asked about that's important to you, uh, important to your career, important to, uh, to an educational life? What's, uh, what haven't I asked about? Ah, uh, that's, well, that's. Uh, <laughs> ah, I got you, didn't I? Ah, you stumped me. <laughs>